0: Welcome to Hunt'land. Land. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. I'm Joe Baia, joined here with my buddy Clint Flowers, and this week's Hunting Land podcast is brought to you by the Alabama Black Belt Adventures Association and their new coffee table book, Black Belt Bounty. Black Belt Bounty celebrates the rich traditions of hunting and fishing that are so deeply embedded in the lives of those who are fortunate to enjoy Alabama's Black Belt. They feature award-winning writers, photography, and recipes from some of Alabama's nationally recognized celebrity chefs. Pick up your copy at alabamablackbeltadventures.org slash blackbeltbounty. Before we get into this week's show, I'm, I'm excited about this week's show because we're going to be talking about some hardcore hunting tactics, but before we get there, I want to give you guys a little land loan market update and find out what the interest rates are doing to do that, we're going to be having Amanda Ryan with Alabama Ag Credit on the show, and Amanda, tell us about these interest rates. I mean, it's crazy how low they are. What, what's going on in the uh, in the farm credit system?
1: Yeah. So, hey, Joe, thanks for having me on for a few minutes to speak about our historically low rates. So, land rates. You know, a little bit different product than the home mortgage that a lot of folks are used to. Uh, you know, seeing, hearing about, and and probably most folks taking out a home mortgage at some point in their lifetime. But we, with with land loans, I I just first of all want to say that the funding is there. We're very stable, the farm credit system in general. Uh, We are funded by the, the sale of bonds. So the, the funding is very stable. We've got plenty of money to lend for folks to buy that piece of uh, hunting land. So we're here to do that. And we're here to do that at historically low rates. I, I do have a little disclaimer. I have to say, of course, all rates are dependent upon the specific purchase, and the specific borrower's financial circumstances. But I would say today, our typical rate product for a long-term 20 up to 30-year fixed interest rate, you're going to be somewhere in that 4% range. Could be a little bit less, could be a little bit more. Uh, Right now, we're just kind of throwing out general terms, low fours. And keep in mind, when you borrow from the land bank, we are a co-op. So you will be a stockholder with our company, which entitles you a, a refund of that interest on an annual basis. And the past decade, that has been either 1% or just under a full percent of that interest. So when you factor that in, you're looking at, you know, ranges in the threes, which a year and a half ago, we were looking at, you know, high five into 6% ranges for land loans. So this is an opportune time for folks that are looking to really go ahead and make that purchase and lock in a historically low rate that can be fixed for the life of the loan, or however long you want it. Uh, Also with no prepayment penalty, so you can pay it off whenever you would like, and there's no penalty to do so. So we're excited about that. Uh, Our rates do change on a daily basis, uh, but they've been ranging here, uh, you know, I would say the past past few months with everything that's going on uh the markets are a little volatile so we do get daily funding numbers but you know these numbers that I'm I'm talking about today uh they are a good indication I think of where we'll be for the uh short future anyway
0: Amanda I've got this question from a friend of mine this week who owns several uh several hundred acres and and he was wondering if he should refinance. I mean, I was, I was explaining to him that how low the rates are, and he's wondering if he should refinance. So if someone's got that consideration in mind, at what point does it make sense for them to refinance when you're talking about land? I mean, I've always heard the rule of thumb on a house is, uh, you know, it needs to be about 1% lower than, than what you're at currently. Sure. Is it that way with land as well? That's a good
1: rule of thumb. You know, you want to look at how many years left you have on your existing loan. And, you know, if you're a current borrower with us, we, I've got several folks that I'm currently running some numbers on to see if it makes sense. You know, you need to take into account, uh, you know, what that's going to save you over the life of the loan versus what you're paying in new, uh, fees, uh, you know, to, to do a refinance. So, Typically, you know, for my customers, it's basically if they can recoup their closing costs, uh, you know, right now we're looking at folks, as long as they can recoup those new closing fees that they're having to pay for the refinance, you know, within the next couple of years, and it's a long-term loan, then absolutely it's, something that that we are recommending because it's going to save them a lot of interest costs in the long run. And typically where we're seeing that, yes, is is a percent or so. But again, it depends on their loan balance and how many years they currently have left on that existing loan versus what they're looking at in a refinance situation. But that's still a pretty good indication with that 1%. But again, depending on their specific circumstances, could be, you know, a little bit less, could be a little bit more.
0: Well, we say that a lot on here. It depends. And, you know, it really does pay just to pick up the phone and call somebody there and get your specific questions answered. And, you know, one of the things since since the COVID-19, you know, change on on all of our lives and, and the economy and people's psyches, one of the things that I've seen a tremendous increase in is the number of urban dwelling people that are looking to buy anywhere from 20 on up to so say a hundred acres seems to be the sweet spot. I've seen, you know, I'm seeing where people are interested in buying more than that, but that is definitely a a niche right now that we are just getting, I would say twofold, the number of calls that we've got. And, you know, so for, for people that own land in that acreage range now is a, is a, a great time to put it on the market because there's a ton of people looking but when I talk to these folks that have never bought any land before, they've got a lot of the same questions. And one of those questions is always, well, what kind of terms, what kind of down payment? You talked a little bit about that there's 20 and even 30 year fixed rate options. One of the things that uh, people aren't clear about is is what kind of down payments are available out there. And I mean, aren't there some some products uh, through the FSA, you know, which is under the USDA that will allow on up to like 95% financing is, is that available?
1: That is now that is the farm service agency, which is a division of us department of agriculture. They do have, we are a, um, we are a lender with them, a preferred lender, uh, Alabama credit is a preferred lender with that particular government agency where we are able to partner with them, uh, pretty, you know, seamlessly in order to, there are a couple of different programs they have like a down payment assistance program. And then they also have a guarantee program where they were, they will guarantee us as the lender up to, in certain circumstances, that 90, 95% range. Uh, so yes, there are typically land long, you're looking at a 15% minimum down payment uh, to get you into that property. There are typically that's going to be a cash investment of that initially and then we will come in and finance that that remaining balance but yes that's a great point that there are programs out there specifically with farm service agency that would be able to in certain circumstances and uh, upon the government government's approval of that particular borrower as well and their funding situation at the time there could be some assistance there to help folks get into that property for the first time.
0: Well, Amanda, thank you for catching us up on the, uh, the land loan uh, rates that are just, just like you said, historic right now. If folks want to call you uh, or talk to someone uh, there at Alabama Ag Credit and, and get some answers for their specific situation, maybe a piece of land they're looking at, what's the best way for them to reach out?
1: Sure, so thank you so much for that opportunity. We are, of course, uh, we are here in Spanish 4, Alabama, just for those that don't know. And our local number to the office here, uh, that's 251-626-2929. Uh, they can ask for me. We have a couple other other lenders here in our office that would be glad to speak with anyone, especially just with general questions. We are uh, operating as normally as possible during these, these COVID times. So also uh, our website is a great source of information, just alabamaagcredit.com. There is a contact us and locator tab there, depending on the specific county or area they may reside in or where they're looking at that property. I suggest alabamaagcredit.com. You can go there. You can find myself, uh, our other lenders, our other branches, and it'll have all of the uh, lenders' contact information there. We have some long email addresses, so I'm not going to spell all that out for folks, but uh, if they can go to that website, they can get all of our contact information there for their specific location, and we would love to speak with anybody interested in a land land purchase.
0: Clint, believe it or not, bow season's right around the corner. Didn't realize this, but the vast, I think like 80% of tree stands, are sold in July and August, everybody getting ready for those seasons coming up and so today on the show we're going to be talking about you know really how to hang and hunt, which means you know going in not necessarily blind to an area but going into an area where you don't have a tree stand currently set up and and being successful in hunting whitetails in the early season and I, I want to bring on a buddy of mine nick williams he's he's one of the best southern public land whitetail hunters that I know he's consistently killing good deer on public land and private land all all over Alabama. It's been interesting to watch his progression and how he can go in and take a new piece of property that he's not been on before and and really have success uh, right out of the gate. So Nick Williams on this week's hunting land. Welcome to the show, Nick. How you doing this week? I am doing well. Glad, uh, glad that y'all invited me on. Yeah, man. Well, we're looking forward to Talking a little bit of scouting because I know you, you do some scouting pretty much year round, right? I mean, when do you like to scout for the early season?
2: I scout year round, in in one way or the other. Once it gets hot, I don't I don't walk out and bust a lot of brush, but I do a lot of stuff. I'm a big believer in postseason scouting. I'll I'll go out and take my squirrel rifle. Um, I I scout for deer, you know, during turkey season. Uh, a lot of my turkey hunts turn into deer scouting trips, and then once it heats up. I spend a lot of time either aerial scouting or just driving the roads on some new WMAs. I do that all through the summer, and then once small game season starts back up, I'm usually a squirrel hunting and looking for deer sign. And I, I do a lot of scouting uh, during the season. If I'm not on anything that interests me, instead of sitting all day, you know, if I if I don't have faith in a spot, I'll climb down and go find something that gets me excited again. So I, I think most people don't scout enough, and I I try to. I'm a big believer in the 80-20 rule. I believe that if you got the time to do it, 80% of your recreational time hunting should be scouting and you'll be more successful
0: that way. Well, you mentioned scouting at the end of the season and scouting during turkey season. And yeah, today I want to talk about very early season hunting for whitetails specifically. And so when I scout post-season, I'm generally thinking about the end of the next season as I as I'm finding those patterns, I'm thinking about the end of the next season. When you're scouting, when are you going to do your scouting for the early part of the season, and and what are you most focused on? Yeah, a
2: lot of it as far as those those first few weeks, really all of those season I kind of consider to be the early season. It's still hot; you can hunt in shorts, flip flops. Got to have your bug spray, and I I do a lot of it. Our small game season it starts now. I think what September 15th, so. Usually, that's when I start really ramping up my scouting, because I've found early season, most of your, your activity, the rut, isn't anywhere near happening. Deer, if they're not breeding, they're either feeding or they're hiding, for the most part. That's 95% of what they do on a day-to-day basis. They, they eat and they hide. So, their preferred food source, early season, once them first few oak trees start dropping, That's kind of what I key in on, and a a really good way to find that stuff is small game hunting. You know, If you squirrel hunt, you're going to find them squirrels. They're going to start in the beech trees and the cypress and the tupelo, and then as soon as them first few oaks start dropping, they're going to move into them acorns. And once you know where them good trees are, a lot of times, you know, squirrel hunting, you'll be busting deer off those oak trees. And that's where I want to start, at least looking anywhere I got thick cover next to some of those oak trees that I know are hot. Uh, for them first few weeks of season that's what I like to key in on.
0: So talking about keying in on those oaks that start dropping do you do a lot of e-scouting you know looking at aerials and and trying to like you say maybe deduce what the 20 percent of the property is that's going to produce 80 percent of the results or do you spend the majority of your scouting time boots on the ground?
2: The majority of the time is spent boots on the ground. I think e-scouting is, is important. I think it can help you get an idea for what you're looking at, but I, I still like to walk as much as possible. Like like a good good example, just staying with the theme of the whole early season thing and the oak trees. I hate to give away my secrets, but here on the upper delta, a lot of your trees like your red oaks, those are evergreen trees. Uh, there's not a lot of evergreens out in the swamp. So if you get on Google Images, and you dial back until you've got some winter imagery, a lot of times you can identify those oak trees from an aerial, just just by looking. If you see a green crown, you might be looking at 45,000 acres of swamp, most of it's Tupelo and Cypress. Deer don't eat that, and I don't do anything for them. But you can see, a lot of times, those individual trees out there in that swamp. Uh, and if you find a good concentration of those, I've got some areas on some creek banks where, I've hunted and had a lot of success there and it all started with noticing those oak trees. And then you just gotta get out there and walk from, from tree to tree. Eventually you'll find the one that has the deer tracks on it. So it's kind of a combination. If you just went and you looked at the map and you found some trees and you just set up, yeah, you might kill a deer. But if you put in that extra effort to go verify what you're looking at on foot, I've had tremendous success results seeing and killing deer combining the aerial scouting with the boots on the ground approach to see the stuff that don't show up you know the rubs the scrapes the droppings, the tracks
0: all of that stuff well you're talking about hunting uh, river bottoms and and that's a great tip man to be able to dial back and find those oak trees just using an aerial at least point you in the right direction now you but you you've traveled all over uh Alabama. I saw you had a lot of success last year hunting Portland Landing. You hunted up in Barber County some. So you're you're seeing lots of different types of terrain. What else are you using your aerial scouting for, especially where you may be limited on how much time you can spend on the ground? I know like say Portland Landing, for example, you had what, one weekend that you were able to scout before that hunt? Yes, sir. I did. Portland was actually
2: since that was such a high stakes hunt, you know, it's such a prime piece of ground And it's got such a a legendary reputation. You know, Mossy Oak used to own it. As I started digging into it, I started realizing just how lucky I'd got. Only having them them handful of days to hunt it, I was so amped up. I actually, believe it or not, I believe my unit that I was assigned to, I think I saw every square inch of it uh, with boots on the ground scouting. That's how important I think it is. I walked that whole unit. Over a span of two days and, and use that information to kill the the two deer that we shot, the deer that my dad and I uh, shot, plus the does. I think we shot two bucks and whatever, whatever your limit for does is, I think we were one shy of hitting it. We finally just kind of ran out of cooler space. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a crazy hunt, man. Definitely anybody that gets, a, gets a chance. If you're not registering for the SOA, I hate to say it because it's hurting my own odds, but if register for the SOAs. Just just do it. If you're if you're on the fence about it, just go do it. It's an awesome time if you get drawn. Barber, you know, was kind of kind of different. It's a lot lot more territory, uh, and it was the same thing. I just had a weekend hunt. and I had zero time to scout. You know, I showed up like nine o'clock in the evening, and met some buddies, pitched a tent, and you know had to have a spot to hunt. and Come two three o'clock the next day. So I I used aerials for that and mainly. What I what I look for you know deer are real simple people over them but a deer wants to eat not be eaten and then for about a month out of the year they they want to procreate that's all that's on their minds they don't they don't worry about doing their taxes or what the elections <laughs> would like or anything like that they just want to hide eat and screw when the time for that comes so sounds
0: if, awesome <laughs> if
2: yeah if if you're not hunting yeah it's a great life right i wish my life ran that way but if you're not hunting rut, that's the two things you need to look for. Where can they hide? What can they eat? And if you can find a good thicket, that gives you both. You know, that gives them plenty of green growth, and nobody's going to bust up through a thicket, or even if they try, they're going to end up spooking deer in the process of it. So I found actually a uh, a streamside management zone in the middle of a recent clear cut and walked in there, actually waited, put on a pair of chest waders and waited a creek and cut through that creek up until it widened out. That SMZ widened out and, and gave me a good thicket with some good oak trees. I got, I got on a nice buck up up on there. Couldn't ever seal the deal on them, but I saw deer every day and I shot two pigs. One of them was probably about two fifty. I actually got her euro mounted. She's got some some real good cutters. And you know, a pig like that that's that's like a deer. If that pig survives, especially those quota hunts up there on the uh, on Barber County where you got. Like 500 people on the WMA every day on the weekend hunts. You know that's that's a good place to be. That's a good indicator you're in a good area. So. One of the,
0: one of the things I struggle with with early season hunts is that you know we want to go out, we want to get our spots kind of picked out, and you know get our strategy together. And I'm always struggling of how far in advance of my hunt that I can go out, find sign, and then feel like that sign is is going to be reliable come opening day or or come, come the day that I'm going to be able to hunt. So, and think, you know, like you were talking about with, with oak trees, you know, a hot oak tree that can turn on in in a week and completely change patterns. So when it comes to, you know, actually pre-scouting, how far in advance of, of an early season hunt do you feel like you can, you can count on the sign that you're seeing to produce a good hunt?
2: Early season, to, to be honest with you, it's about my least favorite time to hunt just because of the weather and because of what you're talking about. It, it's right there in that transition zone, right? So you got a lot happening. You got deer transitioning from, you know, soft mast, you know, fruits and, and fresh green leaves and stuff like that. They go from eating yaw pond and the American beautyberry and, and briars and stuff like that. And they start transitioning over to those acorns. And like you say, that can be, you know, within 24 hours, a tree can go from being not to hot. And then you've got hunting pressure, you know, that they, deer have been unmolested all through the summer. Now you start putting hunting pressure on them. So, you know, patterns hold, rut patterns, that tends to hold year after year after year. Um, good bedding areas during the winter, once all your foliage is down, those tend to hold year after year. But for preseason scouting or early season scouting, if I find something hot, I want it to be hot now. And I really want to hunt it now. I'm, I'm not going to go out like there's some guys. I mean, I'll, I'll squirrel hunt and, and scout that way and to try to find areas, but I always double-check. When I go to hunt something in the early season, if I got an oak tree I was wanting to hunt, I'm going to walk up under that oak tree, and if I don't see droppings and tracks and crushed acorns, if I don't hear acorns hitting the ground, you just you need to move, and and sometimes you don't move 50 yards and you find a new oak tree, and and then sometimes you might be on a ridge out in the swamp and all them oak trees might be turned off, and you got to go find something new. So it's uh it's it's very difficult. You can't rely on patterns. I think that's the period where, I've struggled in the past trying to come up with a plan like you're talking about and stick to it, and I've I've realized a little bit more success in recent years just. You know, if I don't like the spot, just keep walking and and don't be shy about hunting something that, you know, that you found that day. You know, I might walk up on a tree and I I did this last year. I killed two deer, walked up on an area and, and either saw deer off in the distance or bumped deer or saw a real good sign and climbed up in a tree and 15 minutes later had deer under the stand. So I think that's the key in the early season is to really stay on top of those changing food
0: sources. So what I'm uh, what I'm hearing you say, and and I I can echo that is that when you're scouting well in advance of early season hunts, it's more about learning terrain, learning vegetation, learning where the thickets are, travel corridors, and things of that nature. But then you're really going to have to get in there close, fairly as close to your hunt as you can stand, and confirm those food sources, confirm those fresh tracks, that hot sign. And so sometimes that can mean that you're having to set up that tree stand the day you hunt or the day before you hunt. It's not always a situation where you can preset your tree stand and, and count on it being in a good spot a month later. Is that kind of how you hunt? Yeah, the, the early season
2: stuff, stuff just changes so fast and you're already, you're kind of handicapped. You don't have the rut helping you out and you don't have that cool weather. I'm a big believer, at least here in the deep South you're already hunting in that, that, you know, October time frame. Down here, it could still be 90 degrees in the daytime. And a deer can't sweat. They're, they're just not moving that much in the daytime. You know, I got buddies that feed, run cameras. I drive a lot through rural areas. And once the, the temperature drops, you start seeing a lot of deer on the side of the roads. You see more deer in the woods. But early season, there's so much food and it's so hot most of your movement's nocturnal and there's nothing holding them in most areas that i hunt nothing's holding them to to one area so they're they're very nomadic the the patterns aren't really clearly defined in my experience you really got to stay on top of them but otherwise you're just going to be sitting out there swatting bugs all evening, you
3: know
0: yeah and early in the season like you're talking about you're having to pretty much you know kind of scout and hunt all at the same time and one of the things i've come to pay a lot more attention to over the years is how I enter and how I exit an area that I want to hunt. Do you have any tips along those lines? So if you are going to go into an area like that SMZ you were talking about earlier, what you try to do when you're entering an area, I know you said you're not too worried about if you spook a deer or bump a deer, you just go ahead and you found them at that point. There may be other ones in the area, but what are you thinking about with regards to entering and exiting where you want to hunt that day
2: it depends sometimes you just got to grin and bear it get to it the only way that you can get to it or you know if if you find something you know right then a lot of times if you're doing the whole hanging hunt thing you know you you might not have accessed it just right and i've been i'll I'll be honest i screw up a lot of hunts bumping deer too hard i I had a real good hunt last year it could have been a good hunt but i just just approached with the wrong wind i was really trying to get back to a different area and ended up walking in a real nice little kind of a peninsula that stuck out in the marsh just had a bunch of oak trees and palmettos. i jumped four deer up out of it you know and it's one thing if you jump one deer but by the time you jump four of them that you know the odds of there being a fifth kind of get a little bit low if, if i know what i'm doing if i know the terrain anytime it's possible it's really it's pretty simple again people overcomplicate it you just need to think about where do you think the deer are and how can you get by them in and out but Sometimes that's not possible. If, if at all possible, I'll approach by water. I'll come in by boat or by canoe. Um, that SMZ, I, you know, I came in by chest waders. So that was a, a really awesome entry route. And I kept using that for the rest of the weekend. You could put your chest waders on and you could walk. That, that little stream had cut six to 10 foot banks. So you're walking on a sandy creek bottom with water that's anywhere from ankle to about, you know, navel deep. And you can use your headlamp you can do whatever you need to do because you're you're basically walking in a tunnel through the mm-hmm. woods you know so, so unless unless something happens those deer hear you when you get out of your truck or something i i, I did I don't think I spooked any deer going in or out it was time consuming you know wading that creek and trying not to pop a hole in your waders or Drop your gun and your stand in the water, stuff like that. But if you can get water access, water access is awesome. As much as possible, stay in with the established trails where deer are used to humans traveling. That's a big thing I really don't like. It's kind of a catch-22 because your food sources, that's really food and bedding is all you have to hunt in the, in the early season. But bedding, you know, you can count. There's always going to be deer in a bedding area. And with a food area, especially if you're hunting in the evening, uh, you know, your, your odds of having to get by deer are just so strong. And that's why in early season, I'm not very picky. I shoot whatever deer comes out. I'd rather spook them with an arrow than let them sit there all the evening and then have to climb down on top of them when I leave, you know, that, mm. that can be very difficult. A lot of times, like people hunting food plots, I don't hardly hunt food plots anymore because it can be some awesome action in the early season but there's either going to be deer in there when you walk in in the morning or if you hunt it in the evening you're going to have to walk out with deer in the plot in front of you you know that's that's a very hard hard situation to hunt in my mind.
0: Well you brought up mornings and evenings do you do you find more success uh, mornings or evenings or you know is there any rhyme or reason to it?
2: For the whole season looking at it from start to finish I have overwhelmingly killed more bucks in the late morning and in the The afternoon, kind of that middle of the day, 10 to 2 thing that everybody always talks about. Early season, I don't know that I've really seen an advantage over mornings versus evenings. But in my experience, uh, getting to your stand early and staying late in the evening is to your advantage because, again, it's hot. And I, I think you don't see as many deer moving during the daytime. The closer you are, right there at the very first legal shooting light and right there at the very end of it, that's where I tend to see more deer. And I see a lot of deer, really, during, during the early season. I probably see the majority of my deer, you know, in the dark, walking to and from my stand. That that happens a lot. I try to get to my stand super, super early, and I try to leave as late as possible, because you'll see more deer that way. But I, I think, again, down here, if it's 80, 90 degrees during the daytime, I mean, if you, if you step outside right now, you don't want to be walking around in the woods right now at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, and the deer don't either they're going to move any animal that has any sense is going to be active right there in that first and last hour
3: speaking of that i mean it's not a matter of if you're going to sweat it's a matter of how much and you know, how do you typically manage your scent when you're trying to slip in and out like that
2: during during the early season i don't think you can down here and i've actually had some conversations uh i've been lucky enough to talk with john eberhardt i don't know if you're familiar with him but he's a uh, he's he's a big saddle hunter he's probably the biggest advocate for scent control that I know of and not not to to speak for him but in our conversations I think even he was skeptical of what a scent lock suit or something like that would do for you when it's 80 to 90 degrees and humid no wind all that it's just uh you know in the winds the weather patterns too and in, in my experience you start getting those kind of predictable. Northwest and Northeast winds later in the season, right? Most of our weather comes out of like Chicago. Um, And then some of it comes down to Eastern shore. But in in that early season, man, there's not a lot of wind movement going on usually. And until you start getting those first few cool fronts, the first week of the season, anywhere I've ever hunted, usually it's such a slight wind and the thermals change so much. You're really, honestly, in my mind, you're hunting the deer that smell you and just don't care. Uh, for whatever reason. I mean, I try, I I use, it's easy for me. It's just me and my wife here at the house and she's actually allergic to a lot of the additives that they use and detergents and soaps and stuff. So 365 days a year, I'm showering with scent-free soap and washing clothes and scent-free detergent, you know, scent-free deodorant. Uh, I keep my hair buzzed real short. I, I try to shower before hunts. I try to be as clean as I can, move slow, but Especially if you're hunting mobile, if you're covering a couple miles before you settle into a spot to hunt, you're going to blow deer, man. They're they're going to bust you. So,
3: How high do you typically get on your setup, you know, just to try to help with that?
2: I've kind of done a 180 in the past two years, uh, especially last year. This, this past year, I don't think I hardly ever climbed more than about 15 foot off the ground. And years past, I was a 30 foot or die kind of guy. I believed in hunting high. I believed in trying to get up there enough so that your scent was blowing over the deer once they got in, in bow range, you know, kind of dispersing everything, hopefully spreading it out, diluting it. But down here, it's so thick. I've just found I have a lot better visibility uh, low to the ground. Sometimes my feet in early season, the past couple of years, my feet might not be six foot off the ground. I might be climbing with one stick, you know, so it's 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 very difficult, early season, I, I joke with a lot of people and say that I could probably save, if I didn't just love the deer hunt so much, I think most people in Alabama would be better off to just not hunt until after Christmas. Just just wait for the cold weather and wait for the rut. But you and I both know no, nobody's going to do that. I, I I say that, and here come October, opening day of bow season, I'm going to be out there. Just I don't know enough for my own good, I
0: reckon. Well, you've mentioned saddle hunting a couple of times. For the purposes of early season hunting, being able to really hunt that hot sign, I started out hunting, my tree stands were climbers, I moved to setting lock-on stands that we just, we'd leave them out for the season, we'd set them pre-season, and that's just where they live for that year, and then I moved to a mobile lock-on stand so that I could get into some of the trees that I couldn't get into with a climber, and be a little bit more stealthy. You know, I, I personally like hunting out of a lock-on more than a climber because I can tuck up in a tree that's got branches below me and I just feel more concealed. You've gone to using a saddle. Tell, tell us about that. Did you switch? Have you always used a saddle?
2: No, sir. I, so I started out, uh, my first tree stand was actually, I'm 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 a pretty young guy, 26, but my first stand was actually one of those old bakers. My My granddad gave it to my dad. And then my dad, he had moved on to something a little bit nicer by the time I started climbing. So I inherited the Baker. So that was my first exposure to uh, mobile tree stands Was the old Baker, the Baker falling tree stand, people call it. <laughs> and uh, I moved from that and then I got one, I don't, I don't know who made it, but I moved on to a steel one uh, that was a little bit better climbing, but it was a lot heavier. And then once, I guess, about the time I started college, I started working at a sporting goods store and I was able to find an XOP hand climber at a pretty good discount. I think I paid like $75 for it, uh, brand new in the box and I hunted with it and, and thought I had it made at that point, man. It only weighed 20 pounds, folded up flat. I put backpack straps and a kidney belt and a chest strap on it. And I just, I thought I was the man, but then I, I started hunting more public land, started walking further and further and had a lot of hunts that, you know, I'd, I'd been carrying that stand all day. You get back to these trucks and you're like, man, I've, I've been walking all day. I never found anything I wanted to hunt. I'm just carrying this 20-pound piece of steel through the palmettos and the the Smilax and the, the thickets and everything, mud up to my knees. Like, there's got to be a, a better way to do this. So I played around for a little bit, just hunting off of the ground uh, with a stool. And I still do that from time to time, but that's a very, very hard thing to do, especially early bow season trying to get something done eye level with the deer so i, I started reading come across john Eberhardt's books uh come across read a lot of stuff by actually dr uh dr robert shepard old old dr Bob and uh up in I think he's around Tuscaloosa so that piqued my interest because he was a local guy that was using one and both of them kill way more deer than I'll ever kill so I was very interested in it I managed to get my hands on old trophy line tree saddle just kind of went from there found the saddlehunter.com community made made a lot of friends and uh just just kind of got involved with that community and just started collecting gear I bought you know, several saddles, Arrow Hunter, um, I've hunted out of those. I've hunted out of JX3s. I've hunted out of the old Anderson sling. Lots of them. I've tried a lot. Some of them I only hunted in them once and threw them away or sold them to somebody else. And some of them I've put probably weeks' worth of time in them if you add it all up. So I'm, I'm pretty hardcore at this point. I had for a while I held on to an old Windwalker. Spent a lot of time looking for it because of a... Uh, You know, Warren Womack, he's a big fan of of the lock-on brand, the Wing Walker, and I think the Limit. So I hunted with that a lot, liked it okay, but you start carrying a saddle, you start getting to the point where you can pack everything up and not have any metal-on-metal contact, not have anything sticking up over your shoulders or, you know, out past the frame of your body, and you go from hunting with 25 pounds of stuff to you're hunting with 5 or 10 pounds of stuff, and and you can crawl on your belly up under a downed log or you can throw your pack up the bank and climb out of your canoe you know up a a six foot bank and it it just completely changed my hunting experience
0: so are you exclusively saddle hunting now or do you still use fixed position stands on you know some of your private land how how do you do it
2: i i think i sold my wind walker the year before last and Ever since then, if I'm not hunting on the ground, I'm hunting out of the saddle. Even up at my lease where we have, you know, established ladder stands and stuff like that, I don't hunt out of them. And and like I killed, actually, I killed a nice little six point last year, pretty little buck. I killed him in a spot that probably wasn't 75 yards behind the ladder stand that my my dad had hung. But that, that deer, the deer had figured out once that ladder stand went up, they figured out that's where the people were. And and my dad, he, he was kind of messing with me. He's like, man, you're hunting my spot. And I'm like, man, I'm just hunting the deer that you don't ever see anyway. You know, <laughs> All that There was a the trail that ran about 50 yards, through a little dip in the terrain, just a real subtle, didn't show up on a topo map, but it was just enough of a dip and there was just enough vegetation that if you were sitting in that ladder stand, then deer could slip right by you. And I, I ended up killing a doe and that little buck about 15 foot off the ground right there 20-30 yards off of that trail you know looking at the ladder stand the whole time and just being able to key in on that was the difference between sitting there watching the birds and killing deer.
0: Nick when you're setting up and you're doing a hanging hunt you know where you're going in you're finding fresh sign, and you're setting up that day what do you do to be able to trim lanes? I mean do you just trim them and not worry about you know making racket or that kind of thing? How, how do you handle trimming your shooting lanes if you're doing a hanging hunt.
2: I I don't and I bounce a lot of arrows off a lot of limbs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean you never know like that's a, that's another big thing about a saddle. I'm real good or or I like to say I've gotten real good about getting into the general vicinity of deer. But I hunt with guys who they can, you know, set up so that deer come out on their strong side and stuff like that. I'm not very good at that. Like I can I can tell you this is the area that a deer is going to come through. And I can generally give you an educated guess as to whereabouts they're going to come from, but I I, I probably shoot half of my deer off of my right hand side. So unless I'm trimming lanes up to 30 or 40 yards all the way to 360 degrees around a tree, I've just had so many experiences where I trimmed lanes and the deer don't show up in that lane. Or boy, you trim the lanes, and you know the more the more time you spend on the ground and the more stuff you're touching. I think the more you're hurting your odds if something comes through that area. And also on public land, I had a really bad experience three or four years ago. I found just the prettiest little primary scrape area. It was right on the edge, transitioning from a marsh to some mature pines that had a lot of palmettos up underneath them. You had some good oak trees and you had, I mean, there were probably 20 scrapes in an area, you know, not the size of my front yard. Rubs everywhere, big, big, nice, gnarly rubs where you could tell that deer had a lot of, you know, knots around the base of the antler. you know, not just a slick rub, something where he had left strips of bark on it, just a real nice buck up in that area. And I found a shed. So I I was finding deer beds, I was bumping does, and I was like, man, this is going to be awesome next year. So I went and I prepped that area, set up a tree, and didn't leave any marks, just left a, a GPS breadcrumb trail through there but I trimmed good shooting lanes out into that marsh and this place was probably a two mile walk back from the parking area and it was probably 300 yards off of the nearest little walking trail and I come back next year about middle of January kind of prime time rut there was a summit tree stand somebody drug out there and just bolted onto the base of the tree and they had cut more shooting lanes on top. I had tried to be discreet, but this dude had literally gone through, and he could cut down some of the trees that had rubs on them <laughs> to make the shooting lanes. And uh, I, was, I was so mad, I just about took his stand off and threw it off in the swamp. <laughs> I just, I walked away, and I have not been back to that area since. I, well, I do I... not like people in my spots. I don't want to hunt there if somebody else is hunting there. So yeah. I, I try to be very low profile.
0: Well and that sounds like that's another uh, you know uh, another feather in your cap for for the saddle is that you're you're not alerting humans to your locations as well if you don't if you don't trim so it sounds like you've gotten away from trimming uh at all really i guess i mean you know if you're on private land it's a little different se- se- scenario but even still you're hunting a lease you're you're competing with other guys that are leasing the land with you and they they find your stuff too Definitely happens.
2: I'd say the only time I trim, I will go up and lease and trim. Me and my dad, we lease it. It's just the two of us. We work together, and I'll I'll go up there in the summer and take a chainsaw if I need to, and and make you know a two hundred yard long rifle shooting range and, and stuff like that. But but I I wouldn't dream of doing something like that on public land. And you're really you're kind of depending on the property. It's kind of a questionable legality trimming stuff. You know, it usually says not to uh, damage or remove any vegetation so right. there's just another reason
0: yeah well so well tell me about the kind of saddle you've got set up now and I, I know uh f- for folks that are listening a lot of folks are still not familiar with saddle hunting so give us a a, a description of hunting from a saddle and what you're at, what actual equipment you need to do that and what kind of equipment you like because i know from talking with you a lot that you've tested a lot of stuff and you've really worked your setup down to where you got it about as light as you can can go
2: yes sir i've I've, I've been very lucky to to talk with a lot of people that have been doing it for a lot longer than me i've been very lucky to work with some of the manufacturers and uh kind of you know work on and test prototypes and bounce ideas off of them and see some of that stuff make it onto the market Uh, i'm actually currently right now i'm hunting out of something i made myself um it's very similar to brad kunert's saddle with Lone Wolf custom gear. Kind of more like a waist belt design made to be used with a big platform. I've I've hunted out of trophy line tree saddles. I've hunted out of the JX-3 that John Reed makes, which is kind of a hybrid if you're used to sitting in something like a Millennium or a Summit. Big comfortable stand with a good backrest and everything, that's kind of a, uh, kind of a hybrid you know you get you get the ability to swing around a tree and set up in areas you can't get a climber but you get some of that comfort level um, at the expense of a little bit of weight but it's also a backpack frame and it serves as a ground chair so awesome product from a real cool dude uh the trophy lines are real solid that's about your cheapest option to get into it um because it comes as a kit you know and you're going to need some stuff you're going to need your saddle you're going to need your tether rope and you're going to need your lineman and then you're going to have to have somewhere to put your feet. Either a platform like the one Lone Wolf Custom Gear makes or a tree suit. Um, I've, I've been able to work with Mark a whole lot over at tree suit. for uh, not tree suit. He owns a tree hopper. He, he puts together the tree hopper hand drills. And I use that a lot of times to drill holes in a tree and slide grade eight bolts in it to climb up a tree. You can use those to stand on as well once you get to height. But then he also brought back the uh, tree suit platform. I got my hands on one of those a couple of years ago in a trade and, and liked it, made a video. It got a lot of responses. A lot of people started making them themselves, and he got interested in it. So now he makes those, but he makes them out of aluminum instead of steel like the old ones were. So that's a very economical, uh, very sturdy, very comfortable option for you to stand on. And, and then I've also uh, probably my bread and butter for the past four or five years has been an arrow hunter tree saddle. Uh, I'm, I'm a real big fan of their products they've spent a lot of time new tribe which is the company i think that is kind of the umbrella company parent company for arrow hunter they've been making arborist saddles for a very long time all of their saddles are very well built they're very sturdy um, and they're very comfortable you know I, I spend a lot of time i'm lucky i'm married but i don't have any kids my job affords me a lot of vacation and free time So if a cold front runs through, I can take a half day and hunt that morning. I get a lot of three-day weekends. I get a couple weeks vacation for the holidays, and I use a lot of it to hunt. So I'll, you know, spend all day. And a a comfortable, well-made saddle is, to me, more comfortable than any stand I've ever sat in.
0: That's interesting because, I mean, that's always a challenge, and being able to hunt for long periods of time is just the comfort level. And as you – one of the things – I'm a big guy, you know, I'm 6'5", and so – A lot of the uh, lightweight lock-on stands that are on the market that are meant to be mobile and meant to be able to to accommodate lots of different types of trees and, and scenarios like that. They're not super comfortable for real long sits i mean it's it's not like sitting in a you know some of those climbers you can s- sleep in them and sit in them all day and it's interesting to hear you say that you feel the saddle is more comfortable than than those now let's talk about safety a little bit because I have fallen out of a tree stand I fell when I was nineteen uh transitioning from a lock on to my my climbing I was using bolts like you're talking about, and I uh, fell fell thirty feet uh, almost died and Since then, I've gone to using lifelines and full body harness, staying connected from the minute I leave the ground uh, until I get back on the ground. I'm never disconnected from the tree in any way. And I think that that's how everybody should be. When it comes to saddles, are you able to accomplish the same thing? Because my question is, obviously you got the lineman's belt, but when you come up to a limb and you've got to get over that limb to, to get above it, how do you do that without disconnecting? You've got
2: a couple of choices there. So the neat thing about a saddle is it serves as your safety harness. So you really don't have a choice. It's not like you can go hunting. Like I, I use a harness because I hunt a, a lot way back in the woods where you really don't want to contemplate what accident would look like. You know, if you fall and break your leg or break your back, you don't have phone signal, and there's a lot of times there's a river between me and my truck. I'm pretty safety conscious on stuff like that, but I've had mornings where you get out there. You get to the base of your tree and you realize that your harness is back at the house, or it's in your truck, or whatever the case may be, you left it in the boat. And you're like, well, just this once, you know. With a saddle, if you don't have your saddle, you don't have your harness or your tree stand, you're hunting from the ground. Once you get up to a branch in a tree, there's two things you can do. Some people will use, cause you've always got your tether, right? And your tether and your lineman's belt are, usually it's identical, it's a piece of rope, you know six to eight feet long it's got either a mechanical adjuster or it's got a prussic knot in it it's got your carabingers so you've always got two ropes so when you come up to a knot uh, or a fork in the tree or a branch whatever the case may be if you can't get your rope up and over that without disconnecting you just take that second rope and you put it over the tree branch and and then it's up to you you can either just keep climbing the rest of the way with that rope and use the other one as your tether or you can swap it back out once you go um, but you've always got two ropes always keeping up carabiners and keep a setup where I basically I climb with two lineman's belts and Then once I get to height Whichever one I'm not currently using as a lineman's belt. That's what turns into my tether Once I'm
0: at hunting height. Gotcha. So you are able to stay connected at, at all times uh, From the minute you leave the ground absolutely if, if that's something that you want to do if that's a
2: priority that's absolutely, it's possible. There's no excuse not to. And there are, some guys feel more and less strongly about it. Personally, if if I'm way back in the woods, like I said, I don't wanna risk falling even six or eight feet. You know, a, a sprained ankle might turn into a thing when you're, when you're back in a swamp somewhere. So I, I try to be very diligent about that. I don't ever like to be disconnected from the tree. And then you're actually, it's funny, because with a, with a climber, I hear a lot of stories like yours where it's that transition, right? From climbing to stepping up to your stand. That's actually arguably with the saddle, that's when you're at your safest. Because usually when I set my platform, I've still got my lineman's belt on. And best practice is to always set your tether before you step up onto it. So when I make that transition, I usually have a platform underneath me. I have a lineman's belt around the tree. And then I have my tethered girth hitch to it. So I've got three points of contact to that tree. I'm not saying it's impossible to fall out of the tree, but if you're doing it right and barring equipment failure, which is very unlikely because this stuff is made to a lot higher standard than most of your your tree stand safety equipment that you're going to find in a big box store, the odds of something going wrong, if you're doing everything right, they're astronomically low.
0: Yeah. Well, coming from a guy who's laid in the woods for six hours wondering who was going to come decide to pick him up if anybody was going to (laughs) come you do not want that it's uh it's not a good thing and and you 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 got a responsibility to come back home to the people that need you around and safety is paramount no doubt now you are talking about traversing thousands of acres of public land, you're talking about hunting a couple miles from your vehicle. What do you use to get all this stuff back in there? I mean, it's great that it's lightweight, but if you've got a deer down two miles from the truck, what are you doing to get them out? What kind of pack are you using?
2: You know, I don't use a very big pack. I don't, I don't like them. Uh, I guess I'm feeble brained because a lot of the big packs, they have a lot of straps and buckles everywhere. And they kind of start confusing me. Uh, the ones that have a frame on them, They always seem to get hung on stuff, or they're just huge once you get them up in a tree, you know, and and then you've got to either leave it at the base of the tree, or you got to share space with it and try to maneuver around it. So my pack, uh, I don't think they make it anymore. Uh, Badlands used to make it. The fleece pack, it was a really interesting material that they used. It's kind of fleece on the outside, and then it's got like some neoprene fabric, I believe, or some foam on the inside. I think they called it mutex. So it's a very, very quiet pack. Um, not like some of the nylon and polyester materials you'll see on other packs, but it's, it's a soft pack, no internal frame. Uh, my saddle stuff, it wads up into a ball usually that's you know not the size of a soccer ball hardly. I can, I can really fit everything. I usually wear my saddle. So if I'm hunting with a tree hopper drill and my bolts, that all rolls up into something about the size of a Coke can. My saddle, I wear it on my waist. My ropes, they stay in accessory pouches. All that I carry for gear usually is a little bit of bug spray, two compasses and a headlamp, and then my kill kit, you know, just a pair of gloves and a trash bag and uh, the Haviland knife with a couple extra blades. So anything, really, if you think, if you had something like a JanSport Sport backpack, that's going to hold all of your gear and have enough room left over that you can quarter up and debone a deer and put it in there. Good thing about deer down here is they don't get very big. So it's a blessing and a curse. When it comes time to get them out, it's really not that hard. If it's got antlers, I usually end up strapping that to the outside of the pack or just carrying that in my hand. Now with my platform set up, along with custom gear stuff, I usually don't use a pack because you can strap your sticks to that platform. And I usually just carry my essentials in my pockets, and I've had some pretty good luck with that. I usually just end up quartering that deer up and strapping the quarters to the platform and using that like a frame pack. It's not very difficult. Um if I have a friend, if I'm hunting with somebody, usually I'll get them to help me pack a deer out just to make it easier on myself. Occasionally, if I'm like if it's late season and I'm carrying a lot of clothes, then it may be necessary to uh, make make two trips. But I always tell people, you know, you you have to carry your setup every single time you hunt. And you pack a deer out if you're lucky once every four or five hunts for me anyway.
0: Yeah, if you're like Clint, it's once every four or five years. So yeah, uh, yeah.
2: Well, I mean, that, you say that as a joke, but like seriously, when the time comes and you've shot a deer, you're going to be riding that high. My experience is you're not going to mind making two trips in and out of the woods if that's what you have to do. If I'm hunting somewhere where I can't quarter one or I can't gut one, whatever the case may be, I just walk back to the truck, drop everything off, cool off for a second, eat lunch, drink a bottle of water. And then head back in the woods, you know, to to get them out however I need to, whether if it's with a cart or, you know, if it's up at my lease and I can drive a truck back there, I'll do that. Uh, Last year I had a deer, I had a buddy help me get him out. I went in by kayak and I could have got him out. (laughs) corded him up and put him in the kayak, but I had to cross a swamp and a beaver dam. And it was just a long walk. And it would have been a long paddle. So I ended up making a phone call and saying, hey, I'll I'll split the meat with you if you'll load up in your boat and meet me here. And then he helped me drag it out. So getting a deer out of the woods, you'll figure out a way to do that when the time comes.
0: Yeah, yeah. Great stuff, man. Well, it sounds like it's uh, made you more successful, definitely in, in your pursuits. And uh, it's interesting. It's a... Still a relatively new concept for most people that are hunting whitetails, but it sounds like it is a great way to get an edge in the early season and really be able to set up on that hot sign. Now, I know, Nick, you, you do a, quite a bit online uh, in in the community, so folks want to read a little more about saddle hunting and get some more information and see some product testing. Where do you like to go, and where do you contribute your information?
2: I'm probably most active saddlehunter.com forum. Uh, my username there is Nutterbuster. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nickname I picked up. I like to squirrel hunt. so. Uh, but then I'm also, I've, got a, I've got a YouTube channel up. Um, I, I get on there, probably start doing that more as we get closer to season. I've kind of slacked off on it here in the summertime, but there's a YouTube channel it's called Nutterbusters. You know, I'm, I'm on several of the little local uh mobile tensile delta forums and stuff like that. And I pop through there every once in a while. And then I actually have a, a Facebook group that I started last season. It's the uh, Alabama Saddle Hunters Facebook page. Um, and I started that because as saddle hunting grew, it kind of got, you know, you started to see it get a little bit more commercialized. You started to see company pages and uh the forum, you know, got a little crowded, a lot of new faces. So I started that Facebook page and it is just... With a few notable exceptions, it is exclusively people who saddle hunt here in the state of Alabama. So that's a really good source. I think if you're looking to try to meet with somebody and test some of this and gear out before you drop down the money for it, that's that's a real good resource. You know, meet people that are using a saddle to hunt your neck of the woods.
0: Well, Nick, it's been enlightening, man. We appreciate you joining us today and sharing some of your your hard earned knowledge on those early season tactics and also your use of of tree saddles. We'll be looking forward to talking to you again soon and and hopefully you get drawn again for another one of those SOA hunts. We'll be checking back in with you, buddy. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on here. Clint, you know, I like talking to Nick because a guy can break down a, a piece of land that he's not intimately familiar with and but I'll tell you what, he gets intimately familiar with it because that joker walks, man. He puts in his time. And talking about the Portland Landing SOA, it just kind of brings to mind a lot of people get focused on owning a lot of land. And a lot of times, man, you just got to buy a piece that adjoins an acreage like that. I mean, you've sold some tracks here recently. Uh, one comes to mind in particular that butted up to a lot of land, right?
3: Yeah, uh, we've sold some land inside the... Um Upper Delta management areas, two tracks, one inside and one that abutted it. And, you know, especially those with with camps and things like that, people just rush through them because they see the opportunity of having, you know, they've got their own little piece of ground, but then they can have direct access to those larger areas too. And then we've sold some larger tracks that abut management areas or SOAs as well. And we've got some active listings now that join SOAs and management areas. Like we've got one on the Tombigbee River, 600 plus acres that joins the SOA there uh, outside Solipta in Clark County, Alabama. But what that does really is it, it you've got your own property to manage, but then you've got active management around you with little to no pressure. So you're really getting the benefit of both worlds. And then if you draw the tag or whatever the appropriate case is for, for each property, you can walk straight off your track and go hunt another thousand acres or sometimes like in the delta area you know 60,000 acres you know that that really changes the game as a private landowner when you're able to be that versatile
0: yeah and so you know if you're if you're a landowner that uh, owns a small acreage that abuts one of these tracks you're going to get you're usually going to get a higher price per acre than than what is average and if you're a buyer who thinks maybe they don't have enough money to to own a big piece of land reach out to us because we can identify the tracks that that abut these uh, management areas that give you access to larger acreages while only owning a smaller acreage and it's a great way to get started owning some land if you want to reach out to us at any time uh, you can contact us at 855 nlr land uh, or you can reach out at pros@landhunting.com, folks that's going to wrap it up this week as always please be sure to subscribe rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts and if you'd like us to email you the podcast each week, just head over to greatdaysoutdoors.com slash land to join our weekly email. This week's Hunt podcast has been brought to you by Wildlife Management Solution. The experts at Wildlife Management Solutions can guide you on selecting the best forage for your soils and goals. So give them a call at 877-400-8089 or check out their website with more information and a full dealer list at productsforwildlifemanagement.com. And also, Bay County Armory. Are you looking for a purpose-built AR-10 or AR-15? If you are, be sure to check out Bay County Armory. BCA builds firearms that suit your individual needs. Built for the task you're going to tackle, whether it's hunting, defense, or something else altogether. Bay County Armory. Purpose-built AR-10s and AR-15s will guide you in designing the firearm of your dreams. Check them out at baycountyarmory.com or give them a call at 850-832-2238. And also, Alabama Ag Credit, buying real property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com.